Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about Singaporean food. If you'd like to see more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Brian Coe is the co-owner of Chalk Farm and Milk Moons, cake companies known for Western cakes as well as regional kuehs. He's also a cookbook writer, having written three cookbooks that explore Filipino, Burmese and Peninsular Malaysian cuisine. He is currently working on two books, one that explores the Peranakan foods of Southeast Asia and another on Bornean cuisine. Hey Brian, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I actually own one of your cookbooks. I think it's your very first one on Filipino food. So I basically came across your book at Kinokiniya and I brought it home and showed it to my husband's helper because she's Filipino and she was just really blown away by just how comprehensive the book was. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's so comprehensive. I just can't imagine how much work must have gone into this whole process. Oh, it, it has been incredible. Very, people have been very, I think I wouldn't have been able to produce the books if people uh, hadn't been so big hearted and so open. Mm. Mm. Um, so for the Philippines, it was a joy. So I began with the Philippines. People often ask me why. Mm. Uh, why the Philippines are not Singapore. There's a bit of a story there because the idea to write food books came about let's say maybe 15 odd years ago mm. i was in university and I, I had a little stint as like a freelance journalist so i was just trying to you know uh, uh build those muscles up and uh, it was around that time i thought you know wouldn't it be great to write something for asia or in particular southeast asia uh to produce a book that wasn't really just about recipes but actually told a bit more of a story and a story not just national history or the ecology of a country or even the regionality of the cuisines but uh there's also that very personal tone so it's written in such a way that i'm drawing the reader in and that the reader's beside me this is in no way seminal but it is it was an idea that i got i was very inspired by the works of uh, you know mother Jeffrey, elizabeth david uh authors like that who wrote in that way who wrote it al almost as if it was a travelogue and so i often describe the books as travelogues uh but with food as the center I also think that that usually is what makes, I mean, for me, I speak very personally, but I think I remember better that way. You know, um, I can imagine the author speaking to me and the information seems to stick better if I was, was just reading an encyclopedia. Hmm. You know, it's very nice, it's very concise, but at the same time, I'm not compelled to stick around. It's yeah. very in and out. I'm in there for work. To get to glean information and then I'm out. I, I tend to see countries through their food. For some people, it's not. Some people, it's politics. Some, for some people, it's music and arts. For me, it's food. And so when I travel and when I eat, I want to produce a mosaic, if you will, that's as vivid as possible. I want to collect as many tiles as possible. I really want to see uh, what they cook in smaller towns. I'm interested in seeing what what dishes mean the most to locals 
to me, that's quite important. And, and very often, the, the dishes that mean a lot to locals are the ones that foreigners may not care for, or the ones that locals may be a bit apprehensive show, showing to foreigners. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so that, so that was the idea behind it. And so I really took it upon myself to collect as diverse a range of dishes as possible. I love what you said about how you try to highlight things that the locals feel embarrassed about because that was my experience when I went to Chiang Mai a while ago, I think a few years ago, because I work as a chef, so naturally I'm really interested in food. And so when I travel, I try to eat the kind of food that locals eat because I just want to understand the cuisine from the inside out rather than from the outside in. So I remember when I went to Chiang Mai, I remember living in an Airbnb for a while. And my host was like, where are you going for dinner? I'm going to drive you to wherever it is. And so I told her, I really want to go and eat at this street side stall that has like uh-huh. no signboard or anything. And she was like, no, yeah, yeah. no I think that's quite embarrassing for you to experience that. I'll take you to a place that does like live music and international buffet. Oh, no. <laughs> And I was like, that is not what I want. I really want to experience what your country has to offer. But I feel Mm -hmm. that the locals felt a bit embarrassed by their own food. Was that something that came up a lot in your travels? Yes and no. You do mean, I think that the people, there are some cooks who feel that it's a bit embarrassing because this is very, very simple food. You know, you shouldn't be really bothering with this. You know, what... Surely, surely you've got more sophisticated things to worry about. <laughs> you know, why are you coming to our small town asking us about the kind of vinegar that we use in our adobo or whatnot? Uh, but for the most part, I've been quite lucky in that it didn't take a lot of persuasion for people to share with me the foods that they held dear. And I think that's because once they realized that it really wasn't about taking something and making it my own, I really wanted to understand and study what people ate, how they cook it and why, the ingredients they used. And once they understood that, then I felt more doors opened and they became more enthusiastic. And I love that. Um, of course, you know, initially when you meet people, they want, to give, they want to give you the best of the best. That usually happens when they feel that as a foreigner, I may not know much about their cuisine and that's why i feel before you travel to a country try to get some information on the local culture get to know what people eat and ask as many people as you possibly can i'm quite good at accosting people these days from <laughs> taxi drivers to to bellboys uh, so, so where you know which region are you from and what do you cook and what do you eat <laughs> and and it's very good so even and even you know even sources like youtube blogs even uh, Wikipedia, which I know people would raise an eyebrow at, but my point is that these are conversation starters. It's a very good way of talking to people. So even if something's erroneous, they will go, no, 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 that's not right. So so for example, I learned about some red curry of bamboo shoots cooked by the Thai community in Kelantan. And so when I went there, I actually asked people about this particular curry. And they said, not that we know of anyway. However, we do have curries made from this, 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 this. And so that's very helpful. So even if you've been misled, it often leads to gems. If you have presented to your host that, that you're very interested, this is what you know, your heart and mind are both open. 
I, I really believe that doors will open as well. Information will come. That's beautiful. Was it ever intimidating for you? Because I wrote a cookbook on wet markets in Singapore. And I think for me, it was a bit intimidating, the process, because places like the wet markets, people are kind of like doing their day-to-day things. And I was just so afraid to be in their way. So was that something that you ever worried about? Or like, was that a challenge for you to overcome when you were writing the books? when it came to interviewing the cooks and sometimes in homes, I would cook with them. Mm-hmm. So during that time, that hour or two together, we really got a chance to bond. In a way, we kind of learn from one another because we exchange information, things that's going on in Singapore and Malaysia, things that's happening in the Philippines or Burma. Most cooks are quite inquisitive and they want to know things. They knew that I wasn't there just to take them for a ride. Some writers and some cooks can get quite prickly mm-hmm. when they feel that you have just showed up to fill column space. You're almost humouring them. Uh, things can go awry. But when they realise that, that I really wanted to know certain things, mm. their guards went down. But there are indeed other aspects that, uh, I, mean for, I mean, for instance, you know, going to markets and taking photographs, there are times where you almost have to be slightly impudent. Sometimes you, you just can't wait for, 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 some, for something to happen. So I have a host with me and I'll often ask the host, I'm just going to take photographs and if you see my camera go up, just please, please, please ask the person if it's okay to shoot or not. Because by the time I'm done conveying that myself, whatever I want to shoot may be gone because no one at the market is going to wait for you yeah. to, to, to shoot that <laughs> basket of rare vegetables before someone comes and picks it all up. Yeah. You know, so... So, so that, and that's something that can be quite intimidating because I'm aware that I am, I mean, yes, it is a public space, but I'm also on someone else's turf mm. and I'm this foreigner armed to the bloody yeah. camera. Because it feels like such a sacred space, doesn't it? Yes. The most beautiful photos or the most beautiful scenes come when the subjects are at their most candid, you know, when they don't realize yeah. the camera. The best ones are the ones where... Sometimes the subject is not even aware. He's kind of, he doesn't seem to be aware. He's probably aware I'm there because you can't miss me with a bigger camera. <laughs> you know, you, he's, but, 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 but they're, they're not facing this. So in other words, it's not a portrait. They're not mm-hmm. looking at me and posing. I, I, I try not to take portraits. I kind of like it. it. It really jives with the tone of the books, which is that, the reader is there standing beside me at the market looking at what's happening mm. you know and and i and I, I do quite like that i would love to zero in on your relationship with filipino food and cuisine certainly so i grew up eating filipino food i had a nanny who well technically speaking i had two one who came into my life when i was very very young two years old and who left when i was 12 and i had another who came when i was 12 and left when I was in my mid-twenties. Wow. So these two women helped shape and form my understanding of Filipino food. And I was spoiled. I ate really well. Mm. Um, and I took it for granted for the most part. School lunches with them, if, it, if, if those lunches didn't comprise uh, school food, canteen food, it would often be whatever they were cooking at home. And so they would use this chance when my parents were out to really indulge in their food. So things like adobo, bakvet, which is like a vegetable braise, sinigang, which is a lovely sour stew that can be made with many kinds of protein. And actually those dishes 
was still very acceptable by my parents' standards. So those things often made their appearances at the dinner tables as well. But th there were certain things that appeared at the lunch table that my parents probably wouldn't enjoy too much. One would be, it's called bangus, and it's milkfish. It's a really lovely fish. It's called milkfish because the flesh, if it's well cooked, it really is milky, it's creamy. And the most famous milkfish, if my memory serves me right, comes from Pangasinan in northern Luzon. What we do at home is that we buy the milkfish from the markets, um, we, mar we butterfly, we marinate it in vinegar, lots of pepper, garlic, a bit of bay leaf. We let it sit for a couple of hours and then we deep fry it. And it's so good just with rice and some lime. With that, we often had a very simple salad. Tomatoes and salted egg. A very strange combination, but it really works. And if you think that salted egg and tomato couldn't be any funkier, they would actually consume it with baguong alamang, which is fermented krill. So that was my experience eating Filipino food. Now, cooking came actually much later. And that really happened when I actually realized then just how underappreciated this food was. It was also because both my yayas were leaving me. And so I thought it would be good to know how to make these things as well. Yeah, to kind of preserve the memory also, right? Yes, yes. And so I'm actually still friends with one of them. Uh, the other one is probably much too old. Uh, she's prob probably nearly 80 now or late 70s now. And the other one is probably in her late 50s. And the other one, we still do talk on Facebook. Well, thank God for social media. We still do talk on Facebook. And so sometimes she does give me advice on what to do, on how to cook certain things. Because they were both very good cooks. I was really spoiled. When it, when it became known that I was writing something about Filipino cooking, which was in a way inspired by a trip I had to the Philippines, to a detox facility, no less, um, because after that writing stint, I was taken around the, in the, the province to eat and I ate very, very well. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was then that it, it really opened my eyes to how little I knew about this food and why wasn't there enough literature on it. You know, so that really kind of impelled me to do more research. And when, when I was embarking on that project, I also began to realize how, how maligned the cuisine was. I didn't realize the hate for it, <laughs> truth be told. Um, uh, I, I had some people on Facebook telling me, I think you've lost your mind when, when, when the very first book came out. I feel that you had such a good childhood when it came to food. Um, yeah. I was brought up by a Filipino lady for, I think, 20, 20 years of my life. I think my experience was pretty much like the average person who has a domestic helper at home, where my mom kind of trained the helper to cook food of our culture. So I, I, I don't feel like I was privileged enough to really try um, Filipino food. Now, so many years later, I kind of like kicked myself for not being curious, you know. I'm like, you know, I had I this, yeah. yeah, I had this wonderful lady who was, you know, so passionate and kind of homesick for the foods that she used oh. to eat. So why didn't mm. I encourage her to kind of cook food from her own hometown? Yes, yes. I mean, I of course, I, I got to try a little bit of her food whenever she went on, on her days off to Lucky Plaza. She would bring home maybe like a hello, hello. Um, and or like um, she really loved the kue in Singapore. And I think there are a lot of similarities, right? Which, mm. uh, yes. yeah, which wow. kind of quelled that homesickness for her. But yeah, I mean, 
now I'm just thinking, why didn't I um, take an interest in not just her food, but in her, you know, I feel so guilty that, that as someone who had a helper, I guess we are, we fall into that trap of always being really self-absorbed in like our own little Mm -hmm. world rather than really Mm -hmm. reaching out and connecting with the other person. Indeed. I, I, I think you make a very, very good point. You know, what you've mentioned actually leads me to something else. And I am digressing slightly because, I mean, those two women, they actually cook very good Chinese food. My mother uh, was born in Penang and my grandmother was born from Ipoh, but she spent a lot of time in Penang. And so they had to learn, you know, they, they, they had to learn to make things the way the women in my family liked them. And they cook seriously good stuff the second year yeah, i had she was famous for like her braised duck with chestnuts and 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 her her dry misiam and her laksa etc etc so much so that the relatives when whenever they would come they probably knew that um i'm not sure if they would want to admit it to me but i think they kind of knew that she was pretty good so they would actually uh put in their orders and say okay oh, we're coming over dinner could you kindly make sure you got this this then this and so these two women were very interested in food. They were interested in feeding people and they were really, they took their work very seriously. And I think what they showed me was that no matter your upbringing, no matter the food that you grew up with, if you have a keen sense of interest, you can cook and you can execute dishes that aren't really part of your culture. You just have to have an open mind and an open heart. In a way, I had to take the leaf out of their book in writing these books. So I had to take a step back. There are techniques that we would enlist in you know, when, when we're cooking the Chinese food at home or even the Malay food at home that would not work when applied to Philippine dishes. And I know this because I've tried. <laughs> Initially, you know, you, you, you look at something being done and you think, that, hmm, you know, why can't I do it this way? In, certain Malay dishes, we always like to saute our rumpas until they're very, very fragrant. And in the south of the Philippines, it's done very differently. And if you did what the Malays or even some of the Pranakan cooks do with their rumpa, you wouldn't get the same thing at all. Uh, you, you, you get something good, but very, very different. And so that's what that taught me. Don't try to be smart. Just step back and absorb all of these things that you're learning. We're all students here. Mm. You know, you talked about how Filipino food is very maligned and very misunderstood. I think Mm. I myself had some misgivings when I first learned Mm. about the cuisine because I felt like there was a lot of Maggie sauce and, you know, the ingredient that you mentioned, bagong, right? When I went to Lucky Plaza, it was tinted a very neon pink. (laughs) Yes, 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 that's right. And I was just thinking, how can I take this seriously? Because there's so much artificial coloring and Mm. all that. And then after that, I read this cookbook called I Am Filipino. Right. Have you read it? Yes, yes, I have. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. So it really unpacked all the techniques. So things like fermentation and things like charring of coconut to make Palapa? Yes. Is that what it is? Palapa, that's right. That is in Mindanao. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So that is very like um, Muslim kind of cuisine, right? That's right. Yes. And I think the more I read about it, the more I saw similarities between 
um, Filipino food and say Malay food. So okay. there was one dish that I made from the book and it's called Piaparan Manok. Manok. That is the chicken with coconut. And right? then yeah. another day I made Serunding which is from ah. Lake Cuisine in Singapore. And I saw the similarities yeah. because um, in Serunding, you're basically toasting the coconut and adding a rumpa and incorporating that into the coconut. That's right. And then, and then for the Filipino dish, it was very similar, but you kind of use spring onion in the mix and you're charring yes. the coconut as well. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, it's so similar. So did you have any of these kind of epiphanies when you um, study yes. Filipino food? Oh, absolutely. So when, when people talk about Philippine cuisine, it's often uh, described in terms of its history. The food that the Filipinos call native cuisine, the food of the indigenous ethnic tribe, that forms the base layer. And you've got influences coming from the Chinese traders, from the Indians, from, of course, the colonizing um, Spanish and the Americans, so on and so forth. And this ties into something that I know you asked me, which is that, uh, why is it that it, it's so, it seems so difficult for people to take Filipino food seriously here? And this was actually, someone told me. Um, when I told them I was writing a book on Filipino food, they said to me, I don't understand why you've done that. I don't understand the food of the Philippines. We don't understand where it fits in Southeast Asia, where are the herbs, where's the spice, yada, yada, yada. And, and so she went on to say something like, you know, it's, it's a bit like Malay food we have, but not quite. It's a bit like, like even the Chinese food they have there. It's all similar, but not quite. And so everything is viewed uh, in a slightly inferior light. You know, it's, you're neither here nor there. There's another book coming out, which is Borneo. I find that if people go to Borneo, their questions would be answered as to where this cuisine fits in. Because that's where you actually see a lot of the dishes that we know and we love seem to become a bit more Filipino in their treatments. So a lot of the dishes that you find in Mindanao, for instance, you can find twins in Borneo. Mm. A lot of cooking techniques. So for example, uh, that, that technique of fermenting meat and uh, shrimp or fish in rice and salt, you get that in Borneo as well. So some people have asked me, you know, what, uh, uh, could you just tell me what ingredients make Filipino food so special? I find it quite difficult because if I were to list those ingredients out, you're going to go, well, what's the difference? You've got fermented uh, shrimp paste, you've got fish sauce, you've got coconut milk. We have all that as well. You know, what's so special? And what's special, I find, is in the treatment of these ingredients and also what is desired in the finished product. So I can give you one example. In, in Singapore, we are very particular about, about coconut milk, right? In that when we add it to a curry or into a dish, we don't want it to split. We are very, very finicky about this. But there are certain dishes in the Philippines where that splitting is celebrated. You really do want it to split so that you just layer of oil on top. It's the oil, it's the aroma that you want. So there is this dish called Bicol Express, which is delicious and, and you should try it. It's quite rich and quite spicy. It's basically chilies, pork belly, uh, bagoong, or what the, what the Bicolanos call um, balao, and coconut milk, cooked until the, the milk breaks. What is really so special about that, about that dish? We, you know, we, we could have something very similar in Singapore. I'm pretty sure we do. Mm. I'm pretty sure that the, the, that the Malays, they would produce something very similar with onions, ginger, coconut milk, maybe a bit of, a bit of blachan. You know, that's, that is 
the taste of Southeast Asia. What you described, you know, the splitting of the coconut milk. I think it is actually mm. quite prevalent in Singaporean curries, actually. Like, I think the Malays actually mm. do have a term um, to describe it. I think it's called bicha uh, minyak or something. Yes, bicha minyak. Okay, I may be wrong about this, but I think that is, that is more used to describe the, the sorting of sambal, oh, sambal, sorry, of rempas. You fry until it breaks, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, but the Malays, of course, one of the ingredients that they use is called tahi minyak, which, which kind of mean, it means oil droppings, I believe. Mm. And this is basically coconut milk or cream that's left to simmer until, as you say, it splits. And if you think about it as well, a lot of Thai curries, the yeah. central Thai curries, they begin with that. You have got to fry the paste with coconut milk, which then mm. produces the oil. The unusual thing about the Philippine dishes with coconut milk, wherein the milk splits, is that it's often not masked by anything. Mm. So you, you really get that, that full whack mm. of uh, cooked coconut milk, which I know uh, some locals may find a bit offensive. If you were to present it to a Singaporean, they would say, oh, this isn't properly cooked. Mm. Your coconut milk has split without actually realizing that is probably what the locals want. Yeah. I think for me, what makes mm. Filipino food so special is ingredients that you don't typically use in Asia. So things like bay leaves, like that is used mm. a lot in Western cooking, right? With mm. um, tomato paste or tomato puree and also yeah. things like annatto seeds which are like these little mm. red seeds right yes, that is yes, typically yes. used in mexican cuisine so i thought that was really interesting like do you have any it favorite is. ingredients you know something i don't know if it's an ingredient that i find especially interesting in the philippines oh okay wait, hang on i do love guinea pig i believe it's young glutinous rice that, that's hammered and uh if you have if, if you have had halo halo uh-huh. It is that crispy thing that you get on top, that crisp palettes. That's big, And I, I, I do quite like that. You know, we previously talked about why Filipino food is something that has yet to really mingle and fuse into our local cuisine. Why right. do you think that's the case? Do you feel like there is a certain stigma in Singapore attached to cuisines like Filipino and Burmese, Burmese food? people often view Philippine cuisine as comprising dishes that are almost uh, inferior to the ones that we have. Everything is a bit, a bit of this, a bit of that. It's like they just don't know where to put it. You know, I was thinking about you know, what are people looking for? People tend to be looking for this element of sophistication because I was talking to quite a few people and I found that very often people were often using like, negatives to describe Philippine cuisine. Hmm. In other words, they would say something like, oh, you know, sinigang, yeah, it, it, it's a bit like, like Tom Yam, except it has got no this and no that. No lemongrass, no, no spice, no herbs. Mm. If you spoke about some of the salads, for instance, which make use of bagoong again and lime juice, so, yeah, so you know, where's, where's the sambal? Where, where's the herbs that we, that we love with our karabu, you know? Yeah. So it is true. There's no doubt that, that many Filipino dishes don't look very attractive most of it come in various shades of brown. Mm. And the Filipinos themselves would admit to that. Mm. However, freshness of ingredients is something that is so central, so key to, to good Filipino cooking that most Filipino dishes don't stand the test of time. You know, fine, 
with an adobo or with a caldereta or those kind of braises, you may get away with it. But most, but many other things, I don't think so. Like the ensalada, the salads, or kinilao. Mm, it's um, a ceviche, right? Yes, very similar to ceviche. Things like that, you know, you, you, they, they just don't stand the test of time. And also, I think that in Singapore, I think that most of the foods that are probably being sold in these places, I mean, they are there to cater for the masses. And I do have friends who have gone to the Philippines who have eaten so well and have told me, why can't we get this back in Singapore? That is something that has to be explored. Indeed, why? Mm. Do you have this fascination in Singapore with dishes like babigulu or like siobak? But the Philippines is really known for lechon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a huge celebration dish and so amazing when it's done well. So why Mm. can't we... Why hasn't it really... A, I have no idea. And I really think, I do think that some, something has to be done about that. People have got to know what this cuisine has to offer. Because, I mean, I, I do think that people know about lechon. I do think people know about adobo. And if you think about it, um, I think that there's some food courts now that do like anyhow. They do, you know, a grilled lamb poached pork belly. They do um, uh, like, they even make like a pork belly into a bit of a lechon roll. Mm. And so I think that there is that appreciation for that kind of Philippine food. Yeah. But I think it's really important to educate people on what else this cuisine has to offer. Yes. Because it's not just that. A lot of the dishes that mm. you see in the media tend to be like celebration dishes, like very meat heavy. Which is why I think yeah. what you did was so interesting because you showed really humble dishes um, so mm. I think there was one recipe in your book for um, the eggplant omelette. I think it's called torta. Tortang talong. Tortang yeah. talong. Yes. Yes. So it's when a family I, staple. Tortang yeah. talong. Yeah. When I made it at home, I was blown away by the technique because you actually mm. have to kind of like char the eggplant first. I mean, that is a dish that involves very few ingredients, but it is the technique yeah. that really elevates it. You actually brought up a very important point about Filipino cooking, which is that it involves very few ingredients, and that's why the quality of those ingredients is central to the dish. You brought up the eggplant omelette. There is also another dish that is in a new book, and I hope you try it, which, which uses the same technique of uh, uh, basically charring and flaying the eggplants and then lightly simmering them in a roasted coconut sauce. Wow. So you mentioned earlier the light toasting of coconut or your piaparan amanuk. This one, the coconut is very, very fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Live coals are are often applied to it. So a portion of the coconut flesh is singed and then water is added and then it's wrung and this milk is used for the dish. The same ingredients... Yeah. And yet, this technique adds this dimension that, that distinguishes it. I'm quite obsessive when it comes to hunting new flavors, new textures and techniques. And those things really, really fascinate me. On, I mean, this especially when it comes to texture. What we find acceptable textures when it comes to food. The consistency of some of our kueis, for example. So if you go to the Philippines and you have something like sapin sapin, which looks a little bit like our kueh lapis or lapis sagu, people expecting a lapis sagu may be in for a bit of a surprise because their layered cake is made from glutinous rice mm. and it's actually quite gooey. Mm. And it may not have been gooey in the past, but it certainly is gooey now. 
And if you were to present someone with a sapin sapin that they can cut very, very smoothly, they go, that's not right. <laughs> it has to be really gooey and, 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 and sticky. And then they go, oh, okay, that's, yeah. That's yeah. what it should be. That reminds me of kuih bingka almost. Like, you know, it has to be a bit gooey on the inside. Yeah. And I think the, Philippi the Philippines actually have a cousin of that called the bibinka, right? Yeah, okay. So when you say bibinka in the Philippines, um, ooh, it's a loaded term. Because <laughs> when you, okay, so because, because bibinka can be also a class of rice cakes. Ah. So that was, so if you're talking about challenges when it comes to research, that's one challenge I experienced, which is that um, nomenclature, the naming of foods, mm. varies so much when, when you go when you go from place to place, and it doesn't just change. Sometimes it, you they actually exchange um, terms, or they seem to exchange terms. So when you, when you say bibinka, I know what you mean. You're probably talking about a baked cake that's made from ground rice or even cassava or tapioca, mm. which they would sometimes call cassava bibinka or cassava cake. Yeah. That's probably what you mean. But if you go elsewhere and you ask for bibinka, you are going to get something that's a bit like biko or, mm. or biko as we call it, which is yeah. that, 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 gluten, that cake of glutinous rice. But yes, the Filipinos have an appreciation of these slightly soft, uh, almost gooey textures that I think many of us may be somewhat averse to. Even the asuman, it's a banana leaf parcel of glutinous rice, is usually a bit softer than the limper udang, that kind of banana leaf sticky rice article that we are used to. That's another reason, actually, I think, that why the Singapore palate and the Filipino palate, there's a slight uh, rift in the expectation of textures. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the balenke, when you go to the market and you see all these rice cakes, they're, they're often kind of dipping and falling apart where the knives go in. But in Singapore, you never find that. We, we want things quite firm. You want to be able to pick them up and consume them. But in the Philippines, it's normally a bit soft. Yeah, I, I think maybe it's also the kind of ingredients that are used in Filipino food. So like I yes. mentioned, you know, there's this emphasis on using Maggie sauce and there is also uh, 7-Up. <laughs> oh, yes. I think the use of 7-Up probably has been there for quite a few decades now. <laughs> I'm not sure you've heard of uh, blue summer crabs cooked in 7-Up and butter. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a thing. Cooking crabs in 7-Up. And, and, and using Coke and 7-Up and to kind of glaze the lechon. <laughs> if you think about the grocers in Lucky Plaza, do you realise that besides the sabah and besides the odd bunch of malungai, everything else there is convenience food? And mm -hmm. I really think that has had a huge part to play in the general perception of Filipino food. That, oh, it's a convenience cuisine. Yes. You know, and that's absolutely not true. Because at the end of the day, I understand the place this kind, uh, these uh, grocers have. Because at the end of the day, they are catering to the um, OFWs, the overseas foreign workers who work here, <laughs> but who probably don't have the time to faff about with making a sinigang from scratch. And so have had to resort to sinigang stock cubes. Mm. But it is a travesty, you know, now that um, if you speak to many, many of, the, of the younger Filipinos and, you were to, and if you were to tell them or instruct them, please make me a sinigang from scratch, um, the heartbreaking thing is that very few can do it. It's this reliance on convenience food, I think, that has also shaped the general public's 
perception of Philippine food. Um, last year, I was in the Philippines and I actually presented to an audience and I was asked about how people's perception of Philippine food can be altered. And I did say that, you know, currently I think the OFWs are your ambassadors. If all they know is how to cook with stock cubes, cocktail fruits, etc., etc., then, um, you know, it's a bit unfortunate. There's an anecdote I can share, which, is, which comes from Borneo. You know, you go to the longhouses. It's quite difficult to get the so-called native cuisine anymore. Very, very difficult. You will most likely get fried rice, indomie. When I show up, you know, and they give me a demo, it's quite funny that I'm eating, I'm eating the local food and they're eating indomie as a researcher. Although I think that there are certain things I would like to see preserved because they add another narrative to Southeast Asian cooking. I don't think I really am in the position to tell anyone how to eat. If these children prefer fried chicken to ayam banso, which is like chicken that's cooked in a bamboo tube, um, what can I possibly say? In a way, it is what it is. After all this traveling, how has it really kind of shaped your idea of food in Singapore? Well, I think it has affected me in that I find it quite difficult to take things for granted now. Because when you are doing research, and when you are looking at how people cook, there have been moments very early on where you think, I can do that. It doesn't look too complicated. But then you take the recipe home and you find that, my God, I've just opened a can of worms. You know, th this really does take a bit of know-how and a bit of a skill. The, the tofus in Burma, making shan tofu. It doesn't look that complicated, certainly, when you see the videos. But it does require a bit of know-how. And so, these days, anyway, I do look at food in Singapore with a fresh sense of respect. And so I found that when I travel, I try not to make comparisons. Mm. And I think that's something that has um, opened things up for me. Mm. Because when you go in, and if it's, your, if it's your mission to get the best of the best every single time, you're going to give yourself a really, really hard time. Whereas if you just accept every, every dining experience as it comes as something that can offer you an insight into someone's life, someone's perspective, um, I find it much healthier. That has shaped my attitude towards food in general, especially eating in Singapore. So whereas in the past I would have said, no, you know, the, the, the bakuti from this boat is better than this period, I've in a way kind of learned now to, to, to not think like that too much. Mohinga is a good example when I'm in Burma. The more traditional the dish, the more versions there are. And each uh, proprietor, each vendor has his own way of doing it. And I found myself thinking that, okay, well, maybe I'm, I'm not in the mood for something so rich today. I would go for this one. Or I'm not in the mood for something so fishy today. I would like this one. I think I've taken that attitude back to Singapore in a way. In the past, I think I used to, I used to be a lot more, no, this is the best, it's this or nothing at all. But now, because of food research, I find that I don't think that so much anymore. The question I dread the most is someone asking me, what's your top place for chicken rice or your top place for bakuri? I often don't know how to answer. I'll say it depends on my mood. So your book on Peranakan food. Yeah. I understand that you traveled through Southeast Asia to research for this book. What new perspectives do you gain researching and traveling? The first is that there are as many similarities as there are differences. Everyone knows Chap Thai. But how they make it is a little bit different. And in Trunganu, 
they actually have got something called chap thai lemok, which is chap thai with coconut milk. I had the chance of meeting with uh, Trunganuan Peranakan woman, and we were talking about how she makes her chap thai lemok. And one of the ingredients was blachan. And so I said to her, well, I don't remember blachan being an ingredient. And she said, well, I like it that way. <laughs> I like the taste of blachan in there. And she said, you go and try it. It's really very good. The more traditional a recipe is, the more ways there are of making it. And every family has his own way of doing it. One word I've always tried to avoid in my food writing is authentic or authenticity. So some people have told me, you know, something there's no such thing as um, an authentic food or cuisine. Mm. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't really go that far. Something I think we can both agree on is that no matter the size of the paddock, mm. there is a fence. Mm. There, there, there are certain borders that once you cross, most locals will not recognize it. They would not recognize the laksa as laksa or your misyam as misyam. So that's something that I really took with me. That at the end of the day, it's my job to present to people the idea that there's no one fixed way of doing things. Second point about Pranakan uh, cooking is that because this interest in Pranakan culture is fairly recent, people have started rifling through their, you know, their mother's or their grandmother's journals or recipe books, thinking back on what they ate and are now comparing notes and asking one another, so is this Pranakan or is this not Pranakan? You know? And it's very interesting to see how people think. Because in Indonesia, just for example, they will tell you something like, this contains noodle. Noodle is a Chinese thing, therefore this is Pranakan. That is a very, very common train of thought. It's interesting, but also quite dangerous. In a very, very broad sense, we know that it's about the fusion of two culinary cultures in a dish. When we talk about Pranakan cooking, this fusion of ingredients, we are assuming that it happened in a Pranakan household. Mm. But what if it didn't? The bringing in of new ideas is not unique to the Pranakans. Mm. It is how all foods evolve. So a dish that may look Pranakan, for instance, could have actually happened in a Malay household. We just don't know. You know, so yeah, so so it's a bit tricky because many of the, of these dishes and their histories haven't been recorded. A lot of guesswork is involved. We can only guess. I think it's very much in human nature to want to categorize things and make them fall neatly into boxes. But yeah. I think with you know so much confluence when it comes to cuisines with globalization, it's really hard to. Um, and I really loved what you talked about when you talked about um, authenticity because mm. I think it assumes that there is only one reference point. But the thing yes. is, heritage is never static. Yes, and it's very important to realize as well that the foods that even our parents think to be the real deal probably weren't prepared in that way before they came around. Yeah. Dishes are always evolving. Do you know of a dish called kare kare? Yes, it's made with like peanuts. Ah, okay. So, I, I'm, so I, I'm glad you bring that up because the prominent use of peanuts in kare kare, if I'm not mistaken, was didn't happen that long ago. Really? So yeah. So 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 from what I gather, it was mostly taken with ground roasted rice kare kare. In the, if I'm not mistaken, in the fifties or sixties, it was actually quite bland. It was more of a textual sensation. So that's a very good example of something that's evolved. Exactly. So I think 
I think it puts a lot of pressure on cookbook authors and people who are trying to create a resource to really present a definitive look on a cuisine. Uh, I remember a while ago when I was trying to share a recipe for nonya tang, mm. which is a glutinous rice dumpling. Um, and you know, for the filling, some families use mm. nojo, which is the fermented soybeans. And I tried it and I really loved it because of the umami punch that it gave the filling. But when I yeah. posted online this um, Paranakan uh, author, he actually... Uh, reached out to me and he was like, no, if you look at the doyans, they never ever use Tachio. And I was yeah. struggling with it because like, is authenticity more important than how delicious something tastes? I think you bring up a very, very good point. The moment you get a few cooks to talk about what they do in the kitchen and to share their secrets, there's always some form of conflict. In your case, it may be Tachio, but for someone else, uh, um, like an adobo, for example, it could be when you brown the meat. So some cooks, what they do is they boil everything, brown, the, brown their meat halfway so it's nice and crispy, and then put it back in. But I know some cooks who don't. And I have seen people get into real arguments over the dining table because of that. But for us, it's a bit painful because we actually have got to put, things, put these things out on mm. publications, whether it's paper or the website. There's not much we can do about it, <laughs> basically. You know, when I'm handling this Pranakan book, I grew up eating these, this food despite not being Pranakan. And so I'm aware that I may be more affected by certain criticisms more than my previous books. Hmm. And yet I find myself having to, to reach for that skill set that I acquired uh, during my research trip for the, for the other books, which is that some distance, some distance. I find that so beautiful and this conversation mm. has been so illuminating. I think you are such a lovely person. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's been really nice. This is one of the nerdiest conversations I've had in a while about food in a good way. Oh, oh, brilliant. I'm really happy. Thank you so I much, Brian. Take care. Yeah.